Welcome to the Veteran Founder Podcast on the Startup Radio Network. Starting a company allows you to be back in control. The weekly show that brings together military spouse and veteran founders who are doing remarkable things in the business world. I can't imagine there's anything out there stronger than the bond military and veteran entrepreneurs have. We'll hear their story, the story of business, and lessons learned. Boy, can override the worries and depression. Here are your hosts, Carmen Nazario and carter welcome 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 everybody it is wednesday or no it's not wednesday, wednesday. It's friday Holy friday shit. i am off uh, wow it is friday it's, it's 1 p.m on the west coast i'm actually sure it's 1 p.m i think so it's 1 p.m on the west coast welcome to the veteran founder podcast i'm your host josh carter with me as always carmen nazario hello everyone carmen, welcome happy friday happy friday, friday to not you wednesday too. i know oh my god what I'm a so relief off it. to know that it's Friday. I've, I have had my coffee, though, so at least I've had my coffee. So welcome, everybody. If this is your first time, welcome to the show. Uh, every week, we bring in these amazing founders that just happen to have a military background, whether they're a military spouse or a veteran themselves. Uh, we spend an hour just kind of learning about their background and talking to them and really enjoying uh, sort of the things that they've done in their past and learning about the stuff that they've done. This week, I am thrilled to be welcoming Daniela Young from Cultural Forte. Welcome, Daniela. Welcome, Daniela. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Army veteran, and I just want to say, by the way, yay, we, army yeah, veteran. Go army, right? Go uh, army. I'm a Navy vet, so uh, so I won't hold that against you. And but, I'm an army vet. Yeah, and Carmen's <laughs> army. But uh, what I, we Carmen and I just got finished watching your TED talk, and we are just absolutely blown away. Your story is so incredible. And just uh, compelling. I can't wait till our listeners really get to know you. So I want to start at the very beginning because, I mean, wow. Right. We always like to know, uh, you know, where you're from, where you grew up, just a little bit of background, and then uh, eventually what led you into the military. So you're on, Daniela. Yeah. Yeah, so where I grew up is always the fun question, right? And these days I talk about it pretty openly. So I was born in Manila in the Philippines, and I was born as the third generation member of one of the, I think, one of the more notorious religious cults known as the Children of God. Oh, man. It's pretty unknown in the U.S., but it was international started in the u.s in the 60s during the hippie movement when everyone was searching for for god and love and brotherhood and it had this leader who was very dynamic and very i guess drew people in and eventually you know with the (laughs) all kinds of organizational behavior stuff that we can get into later he sort of developed this large group of followers it was had about ten thousand people over you know, uh, constant membership over 40 years, about 100,000 people passed through it. And he got into some very, very nasty stuff, including prostitution, pedophilia, um, incest, child marriages, the works, you name it, um, all while passing themselves off throughout the world as missionaries for God. And so my mother was actually born into that. Uh, When she was 15, she gave birth to me. She went on to have, you know, eight eight of her own children. I have about thirty one siblings uh, combined. Come on, thirty one. 
And I have lived all over the world. So we traveled, you know, uh, Philippines, Japan, Korea. I spent most of my life actually growing up in, in Brazil and uh, other parts of Latin America, Mexico, Peru, but still very much like in these cult communes behind commune walls. Um, so I do speak Portuguese, but I never went to school there. And when I was 15, I got away from there. Let's just say. When, when you from say there. when you say got away, how, how does what does that mean? Is you just kind of like walked off the the village property, or how, what does that mean to? How do you define that? Yes. Yeah, so my mother helped me. Nice. Um, you know my my mom who is definitely one of was one of my pillars of strength my whole life who I say you know at the time I was 15 she was 30 was still very much embedded in the cult herself had seven children of her own was not strong enough to leave yet on her own but was the one that managed to help me get away wow and so when I you know, told them I wanted to leave, told the leadership I wanted to leave. It was a big deal. My parents were famous. Nobody wanted to let me get away, basically. And my mom eventually said, nope, I'm taking her. Put me on a bus to Texas and uh, dropped me dropped me at the apartment of an older stepsister that I'd met about three times. And uh, I had zero dollars. And I remember we we walked into the local high school to enroll me and they just said, well, we can't enroll you because you don't exist. But now that we kn- oh, no. now that we know you exist, we need proof that you're enrolled somewhere within five days, or we have to call the cops. Sure. Wow. Yeah. What so, an interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, what's interesting to me is I, you're kind of you're chuckling, but this is like some serious stuff. This is right? horrible. I, and I, I'm yeah. glad that you can laugh about it now, uh, looking back at it. But mm-hmm. <laughs> excuse me, but man, I mean, holy shit. Pardon my French, but this is like pretty intense stuff. So when you go into Correct. high school, right? Correct. You look at listening to your TED talk. I, I know you said a lot, like you didn't have a scholastic background because you were sort of dealing with being in this cult. What was that like for you to transition into like trying to be a regular fifteen-year-old girl going into high school? So let me just say, I uh, have a bad habit of laughing when I'm. Not nervous, but sort of nervous. So when I, you know, chuckle about these things, it is mostly because I know it's just so ridiculous. It seems actually seems surreal to me today as a 31 year old, quote unquote, normal adult. When I (laughs) think back about the way I grew up, it's just totally, totally crazy. And it almost seems like it happened to a different person. Oh, man. Um, So as a, yeah, as a 15 year old girl, you know, I basically walked in first day of high school, 4,000 students. Oh, man. Um, literally had never been in school a day in my life at 15. And the, the moment for me that I'll never forget was I, you know, I'd done all these things. Like I filled out a scanton with pen cause I didn't know you couldn't do that. And I got in trouble for what I was wearing cause I didn't know there was a dress code. Right. And, but I was standing there and I was listening to these two, students walking by having like, you know, today what I would call as a debate okay. like, or a, a discussion, you know, so not a, not a mean argument, but they were discussing something and they were sort of logically going back and forth. And I just thought to myself, oh my God, I don't know how to think that way. I'm not from a different culture. I'm from a different planet. Wow. 
So um, then, yeah. because I, we didn't have logic, you sure. know, authoritarian society, complete, you know, you were supposed to believe everything the leaders told you based on faith. And question when it didn't nothing. make sense, yeah, yeah you, you didn't question at all, um, which now, you know, has become a, a sign to me of, you know, what leaders should not do is require unquestioning obedience, sure. even in the military. But yeah, so I basically had to, you know, create these whole new pathways of thinking. I got very interested in the study of logic, went on to, went on to college, studied literature and history. And part of that for me was like, I want to, you know, understand logic, understand story, understand organizations and how they're created, you know, throughout time. Um, and then just sort of learn about the world in ways that I'd never done before. So when you were in the cult, Daniela, did they have any type of instruction? I mean, you knew how to read and uh, write and all of that, right? So, yes, they were actually um, strangely very, very good at young education. Like, I could read when I was two or three, um, and, and part of that was this belief that, you know, there's a verse in the Bible that says your children will stand at the gates and defend you from the enemies, and their basically turned out to be true belief was that, you know, when authorities come to investigate what's going on and our children, you know, our five-year-olds can read and quote the Bible, they're going to say, obviously, these children are, are not being abused and they're being well cared for, um, which happened several times throughout my life. Wow. So, and we did, we did homeschool, you know, so we had teachers who, for the most part, did not have high school diplomas, sometimes were 16 years old themselves, and they would you know, administer whatever, whatever homeschool program we were working through. So there's one called CLE, there's one called Becca, there's different, you know, you, you sit there and you do workbooks. Um, when I was about 11, they needed a cook. And that was when I began cooking for about 50 people, three meals a day, and was not really doing much more school. I was working through workbooks my own at night. So I sort of formally, unformally got through about the eight eighth to ninth grade um, with, with school books. And then when I got to high school, it was, I had to take, I believe 22 tests to place out of classes to, to get into, you know, where I should be in high school. And I, I did end up, you know, being able to complete all of high school in two years. Um, Math and science, of course, a little weak for me because I never had any, sort of fundamentals there, um, other softer skills a little bit easier. But definitely, you know, one of the benefits, and I always like to say there's positives and negatives to everything, one of the benefits to me was I never, ever, ever took a day of education for granted. Oh, um, I bet. I knew, I knew exactly what it cost me, and I was a, you know, straight-A student, working full-time, you know, Notwithstanding, I was just thrilled to be in. I'm sure there is there were a number of things that you like now look back and go, I cannot believe I'm doing this or have my own this or have my you know you, things that we fundamentally just kind of deal with on a day to day basis and, and overlook. But I'm sure you have a, a far greater appreciation for those things. No, she's you've really overcome some tremendous challenges, whereas other people that might have been handicaps, but you've gone in a different direction, in a more positive direction. Yeah. So no, we've been talking absolutely. Yeah. And so, I'll, uh, I'll give you a great one, Josh. I have yeah. 
I have a three-year-old little girl, and when she was about one and a half, she went walked up and opened the fridge by herself and just pulled out some grapes. <laughs> and I was just sitting there going like, I never, I don't think I ever opened a fridge by myself without permission oh until I was 15 in my own apartment. Wow. And just sort of that was, you know, like you said, everything too, of course. You know, I mean, I've, I've made great money in the Army. I have you know, things that I never would have had growing up. Um, and so does my child, but it was like, it was that moment that I was like, yes, I'm giving her, <laughs> you know, I'm giving her these gifts of like a family feeling ownership and comfortable in her home. Um, you know, just these different things that I didn't necessarily have growing up. It's gotta be such a rewarding feeling too. not only to just watch your, your daughter go through these firsts, right? A number of firsts that you're going to see your child go through, but the equal bewilderment and sort of awe that you're experiencing it as just a standby. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? Yes. It's crazy. Yeah. Uh, so it's we've also, been... You know, the yeah. first time I took her trick-or-treating was my first time ever trick-or-treating. Wow. So, I didn't think know, about that. Or the her Chris, first day yeah. of kindergarten is also going to be my first day of kindergarten. Oh, so, man. Yeah, it's it's going to be interesting for that, sure. I love it. I I, I love that. That Just that, that sense of wonder is, is so cool. I mean, it came under horrible circumstances, but... You know, to be, that your smile is going to be bigger than anybody else's in that room. I guarantee it. Uh, True. So you just killed my mic. Oh, there we go. Uh, so we've been talking to Daniela Young uh, from Cultural Forte, and we're going to get to that in a moment. But first, we're going to take our first uh, commercial break. Sound good, Daniela? Sounds good. All right, we'll be right back. CPA Dudes, where accounting is never boring. Their price is not based on time. Instead, customers decide what to pay them. They don't charge you for sending invoices, phone calls, emails, texts, or meetings. They just get the damn job done. Find them at cpadudes.com slash startup radio. All right, so we are back. We've been talking to Daniela Young from Cultural Forte. Uh, we are going to get into all of that business stuff, but... Wow, we what a remarkable story we've been hearing so far. Right. I, what I, I think, what I'm it curious, has me on the edge. Yeah. I want to hear the next part. So my, I'm curious. Let, let's dig into that, right? So the next step is you go into the military. What's that conversation like for yourself? And, and how do you convince yourself that you're going from one sort of authoritative thing and volunteering for something else that's not necessarily as extreme but still authoritative? Now, was there college so, in between that? I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah. Was, yes. Okay, so, so that's, that's we, part of it. So okay. I went to college. You know, I wasn't planning to. I was actually talking to the Marines. And then we had to write an essay for senior English for college entrance called What Makes You Different? And I was like, okay, I got this one. <laughs> um, A so lot. I ended up, yeah, I ended up winning about $24,000 in scholarship oh, competitions. Man. And I was like, I'm going to go to college. Um, and then I found out college costs a lot more than $24,000. But, you know, <laughs> you can you can work. Um, so I did that, worked my way through college and loved it. And when I was getting ready to graduate, I couldn't stop this feeling of sort of, oh, my God, I did it. I did that thing. I came to America by myself with zero dollars. I pulled myself up and I am now graduating. Like, I never have to work for minimum wage again, kind of feeling, <laughs> yeah. you know. Um, and at the time, I described it as, I just feel really lucky. I want to give something back to America. And I found out about the officer program, which, honestly, when you're graduating in 2009 with a degree in English, um, going into <laughs> being an officer for the Army is, is not a bad bet, Um 
uh, during the way the economy was at that yeah. time. Um, and so I decided, oh, sure, why not? I can I can give three years of my life back to the country, and then I'll then I'll get out. And I didn't really think about it in terms of institutionalized authoritarian society until like that first day of basic training, you're standing there, it's always in the rain, mm-hmm. you're holding your bags above your head, drill sergeants are screaming at you. And I literally thought to myself, oh my God, I just joined another cult. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I can imagine. And, um, you know, throughout my entire career, I didn't always share my stories that openly, but when I did, People either from my background who knew that I joined the army or people from the army that knew that I grew up in a cult would say, wait, so you're the one that escaped a cult and then you joined another cult? (laughs) As long as as the Um, army didn't make you cook, right? (laughs) (laughs) Right. And it was always kind of funny, but it'll, it'll get more to what I'm doing later that those parallels are really quite true. Um, But I also think in many ways it was easier for me because Standing in line, getting yelled at, being told what to do, not having any freedom, all of that stuff was just easy for me. I could I could watch the drill sergeants and see that, oh, they're just doing a job. They're not horrible people. They're just doing a job, and they're trying to retrain our brains to right. think and act in a certain way. And that was totally reasonable for me. I think that now, knowing what I know and having gone through, you know, 30 years of life experience, I can look back and I can say, and, you know, I, I talked about this in my TED Talk that I was also, when I was graduating college, I was looking for sort of connecting with people, a purpose, a further purpose for my life, um, and the structure that, you know, is one of the maybe positive things that you get out of a cult is you have this structure, you have someone telling you what to do. Uh, it's the same thing that veterans sort of struggle with when they get out of the military is you don't have that structure anymore. Yeah, it's and interesting. so I think that subconsciously I was maybe looking for that as well. Well, it's interesting. Uh, you know, when you talk to a veteran, and I've said, we've said we've covered this on the podcast before, it, the first question you ask a veteran is pretty much the same thing you ask somebody that's been incarcerated, right? How long were you in? Right? It's, yep. mm-hmm. it's pretty much the same question. I've and never so, thought about it. I, I, I yeah. never thought about it that way either incarcerated, but... But it, it yeah. makes a lot of sense, right? It's a, like the first question you ask a veteran is like, how long were you in? I mean, it's the first question I get. I don't know about everybody else, but it's one of the first questions I get. So <clears throat> I, I understand where you're coming from, where it's like it's pretty easy to assimilate uh, in some some sort of structure like that and really hard to, to transition out if you've had to deal that deal with that for any amount of time. Correct. Yeah. And, you know, there was, I would, I would say too that when I was getting out of the military after, you know, I think we're going to still talk a little bit about my time in, but after almost seven years, the parallels to me of sort of the experience of leaving the military and leaving the cults were also quite similar. Sure. Um, Sometimes in okay ways and sometimes in not great ways. Right. And yeah, it was, it was very, you know, with a lot of prisoners when they're leaving, they call it exit therapy that they'll do. Yeah. And with, you know, the military, we have transition programs, which is essentially, you know, maybe we need a little bit more exit therapy. And with cult survivors, there's generally nothing. Yeah. Um, Wait, you guys don't have a program for that? There's no TAPS program <laughs> for cults? <laughs> yeah, so there's generally nothing. There's uh, a couple of, of nonprofits that are trying to build it. Sure. And, you know, then with, with what people don't sometimes don't really understand with when you say second and third generation members, oh, it's man. like, well, when you get out of jail or when you get out of the military, you knew what the world was like before you went in, mm-hmm. 
when you're leaving a cult that you were born into, you don't know anything else. Right. Mm-hmm. right. So That's it's, true. you know, it's, it's another reason I kind of chuckle when I'm talking about it because growing up, that was just normal. And then now I look back, you know, every time I read a book of a survivor or I talk about my own experience, it's like, Whoa, that was so crazy. You, uh, um, yeah, that's crazy. You talk a little bit at the beginning. Well, actually, it's right at the beginning of your TED talk about your struggle with mental health while you're in the military. So let's talk a little bit about that because that's intense, right? I mean, you were talking about there's these three options that I can sit here and take my own life, and and you're sort of debating it in your head. These consequences as a result of the actions. Like, wa- walk us through a little bit of 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 that part of your life. Yeah, I was very, very isolated, I would say, for about 10 years. And I think most of it I did to myself, but I didn't realize that at the time, of course. Sure. And I was just, I was so low, you know, and these days I would say I was, I was giving myself permission to feel like I was so different. You know, I grew up in a cult. No one can understand me. No one can, can relate to me. You know, and I was probably suicidal for about an entire decade, wow. right? Off and on, just always struggling with, you know, when emotionally I just got, I, I just described it as exhausted. Like, I'm so tired of trying to fit in, mm-hmm. of trying to be normal, of trying to learn everything, you know. I do these little things, and because I'm I'm white and I don't have an accent, people are like, oh, you're really weird. <laughs> <laughs> Instead of just realizing, like, I'm essentially a foreigner that moved here five years ago, mm-hmm. and I just don't know sort of the social norms and the social cues. Um, and in you know, in Afghanistan, it just really all came to a head for me. You know, I was, I was 24 years old. I was back in a situation that was very, very dangerous for women. I mean, I literally felt like I walked home every day with my gun at the low ready, wondering if today was the day that I was going to be pushed to the ground and raped. And it put me into this very, very bad place, sort of very much triggered, obviously a lot of of sexual assault and abuse that I dealt with as a child. And the, uh, the good side of that is I did actually go to mental health. Um, and I went and I talked to, I spent on both of my deployments, I spent a lot of time talking to mental health. And I think that really helped me. Um, and then also, you know, I was, I was serving on a team of ground combat operations as you know, one of the first female engagement team members, which was the army putting women into ground combat on purpose for one of the first times in history. And there was a day that half of our team was killed. And, you know, the, the commander who was a very good friend of mine was killed. And so, you know, I'm dealing with this sort of, you know, sexually traumatic world that we're living in. I'm dealing with losing friends at war, wondering what we're doing here, and then still very much feeling just entirely isolated. And yeah, you know, sitting this is one of those moments I'm I'm sitting on a guard tower and I'm thinking to myself, like, how how should I kill myself? You know, what's the what's the right way? And in reality I probably didn't because none of the ways seemed great. Wow. Um And, you know, when I came home, like I said in the talk, you know, everyone thinks that, oh, deployment is hard, but as soon as you get home, everything gets better. Hmm. And it doesn't. In a way, sometimes you get home, you become more isolated. Right. 
um, because you, you now have your own place to go live and you don't have to reach out to people. And I, I literally realized, I realized that I'm in a dangerous place and I need to start trying to fix myself. And I expressed it as, you know, I've, I've been fighting, fighting, fighting for success my whole adult life. And I've, I've gotten there. I'm a lieutenant in the army. I'm going to be a captain soon. Like I, I've pretty much checked that block. And I need to start working on sort of myself personally and figuring out how to connect with people and how to find my place in the world. And through, through part of that process, you know, I was speaking to a friend who was an army major who said to me, Daniela, get over yourself. You're not as different as you think you are. And that was, you know, very much tough love. He might have he might have actually used a few curse words in that. Um, <laughs> sure. And at the time, I was like, "What? You know, are you are you denying my experience? Are you saying that it wasn't so bad?" Which that wasn't any of it. But the you know the reality of it was everyone everyone knows what it's like to experience sort of isolation and feeling like no one can understand you and a lot of these feelings that I was going through that because it came from my unique background, I didn't think I could relate to people. But as soon as I learned to start sharing myself and my stories with people, I realized that everyone goes through the same things. And so everyone can understand you. And it, you know, took me another probably four years to say, okay, I think I'm good. I think I've kicked suicide. Um, Like it just doesn't occur to me anymore as an option. It's not something I think about, but I think that was sort of the, the catalyst for me was, was coming out of the de- deployment and those friends that were there for me at that time. One of the things that you cover in your TED talk is finding your compass and, uh, you know, finding your purpose, finding your process and finding your people. And which one of those three do you think were the most critical for you to t- sort of t- turn the corner and, and get those dark thoughts uh, out of your head? Yeah, for suicide, I think absolutely people. Yeah. Um, I think that people, you know, you, you hear a lot like, oh, why would you want to commit suicide? It's so selfish. And, you know, it's, most of that stuff I think is said by people that have never been there before. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like you're just, you're hurting so bad and you're so isolated that you truly don't believe, like, your life will ever be good again. And as soon as I started forming real friendships. You know, I don't think I had very many real friendships at all from the time I was 15 to the time I was almost 25. Hmm. Um, Just where I really talked to, you know, like even now I've gone back and shared things with my college friends in ways that I'd never done Hmm. before. You know, we were girlfriends going to parties together, but we weren't necessarily talking and really connecting. For me, that was the biggest difference is all of a sudden you have a support group. I, I talked about the three pieces, you know, you need, you need a purpose for your life and then you need a process to get there. Those are pretty much equally important, I think, to just being in a, in a happy, successful place or, you know, navigating any kind of change or hardship that you're dealing with. But the, the suicide part for me was really connecting with people and realizing that like my pain and my struggles, not unique. Everyone has those. 
And Daniela, we did interview somebody recently with, with the same, uh, he, we had the same question, and that's what he talked about, that what brought him out of that state to get help was the connections with people. His family actually reached out to him, and from that, he was able to kind of connect back into society and get the help he needed. So uh, what you're saying has been actually been voiced here before, yeah. which is kind of good to, you know, for our audience to know. Yeah, and, and you know, I'll, I'll say it on this side too, you know, my— my dad committed suicide when I was 16, and I, what you're saying really is resonating with me as far as, like, the selfish piece. For a long time, I was angry at my dad for being selfish, but now he's not in pain anymore. So, um, But I definitely hear what you're saying, and I'm glad that you found people because he was isolated. And I've always said that um, solitary confinement is really an effective form of punishment because you get in your own head and you get in your own thoughts. Mm -hmm. And having an outlet for that, to have other people around to, to really uh, put everything into context is so important when you're in that dark place. Yeah. Right, right. I'm so sorry to hear that about your dad. No, um, thank you for saying that. But, I mean, I, what I'm, what's intriguing to me is that um, we're getting to a space where people mm -hmm. are, are comfortable talking about their challenges. It is. Right, and I think good. that's, especially right. for founders, right? Founders, we talked about this in, in our show previously, and I actually did a blog uh, recently about this, about, you know, you as a founder uh, can go through these dark places, and you've already kind of gone through that before you even started your business. So you are already ready, mentally prepared, to go through what you're going through as a business leader. Definitely. Yeah, for sure. You know, I think the important message for, for veterans, for example, is like to realize that when you're transitioning, when you're getting out, like it's hard, like mm -hmm. everyone struggles with it, you know, and that's, that's very similar for founders. It's part of what I love about uh, this nonprofit that I help lead called Bunker Labs that yep. is, it, it's to help veteran founders find their tribe, mm -hmm. essentially. It's like we're all going through the same struggles. No matter what type of widget you're building, you're you're dealing with this, all of these new challenges and all of these, like you said, dark spaces. And if we connect together, you know, we're going to realize that everyone's going through it and we're going to be able to help each other. Yeah. So let's talk about your business, Cultural Forte. Forte. I love the yeah. name. Yeah, I love the name. How did you come up with the name? So Forte means, so first of all, I was Googling versions of culture, anything, and they were all taken. And I said, well, I'm trilingual. Let me try a different language. <laughs> and Forte means strong in Latin, but also in Brazilian Portuguese, which mm -hmm. is the language I speak fluently. I'm raising my daughter in. And so I, and, and then I came up with sort of the, the tagline of make culture your Forte. So forte being something that, you know, somebody has a specific skill in and, you know, business leaders today are starting to realize that the culture of your company matters a lot. Uh, Harvard just published a 20 year study that they did, I believe, that says that, you know, a positive, strong culture impacts your profit, your bottom line by 756 percent. I don't doubt over that yep. a business that doesn't, um, you know, so there's always been those sayings, culture, eat strategy for breakfast, et cetera. But now there's a really hard number behind it. And so in, in my business, you know, it is about helping business leaders build culture 
with systems, with strategies for doing that. In you know, in the same way that you need to have a financial accounting system, you need to have a culture system in your company. Because if you don't have it, it's not not getting done. It's just getting done in a way that you are not in control of. Yeah, and I think part of it is accountability, right? I, I was an early employee at Twilio, and we have this nine things, right? And they're all like brief, frugal, draw the owl, all these kind of crazy things. But they were always ones that we could, if somebody screwed up, we'd go, okay, point to the, one of the nine things that led you to the decision that you went through. Mm-hmm. So these culture things can also be a form of, of accountability, but they're also really outline what your values are. As, a, as an early startup founder, say, this is what's important to me. If it's important to you, then you're probably a, a good fit here. Exactly, exactly. You know, I think that's, that's one of the keys for business leaders, and it's one of the things I coach business leaders on. It's, look, what are your values? And what are honestly your values, right? So right. everyone likes to say the things they want people to hear. They want to say work-life balance, for example. But not every company has that, and not every company needs that as a value. And not every, you know, where I'm, I'm looking for work-life balance as a 31-year-old with a toddler and a husband who's always deployed, I wasn't necessarily looking for work-life balance as a 27-year-old. I was looking to advance my career very quickly. Mm-hmm. So if you, if you portray what values you actually um, are reflected in your company, you're going to hire the right employees. Yeah, And like that's how values help you build the culture. That's how values help you not just uh, deal with turnover, but actually reduce it because you're getting the right people in the door in the first place. And you mentioned in your TED Talk that cultural forte was not your first venture, right? You went out and got a job after the Army. Yes. So talk a little bit about that. Yes. So I did, I think, what every veteran that I know at least has done. And I said, okay, I'm getting out. What does my army resume say that I do? And I even had a unique path because I was an intelligence officer and every intelligence officer that I know that got out, moved to Washington DC and did the same thing they did in the army for the government or one of the three letter agencies. And I was moving to the other Washington, Washington state because my husband is an active duty pilot with the special operations and I was having a baby and I needed a job that basically supported all of that and was in Seattle. So I said, what does my resume say I do? Well, I do intelligence and security. Okay. I'm going to go do corporate security. So I immediately got a job. I mean, four months before I was even done with the army, I had a job at Microsoft and, you know, through a connection, it was great. And it just wasn't, what I wanted to do. Like I'd never asked myself really that question. What do I want to be when I grow up and what do I actually want to do? And I think that it's so important for, I mean, you can list all of it, veterans, cult survivors, prison survivors, all the, you know, any group we've talked about and even regular people graduating from college or high school, what, you know, what do I actually want to do? And I had been working there at Microsoft for about two years and three different people asked me sort of, wait, you have this background, you have, you know, you're trilingual, you were an army captain, like, why do you work here? (laughs) And it wasn't till you know, the third person asked me and I couldn't answer other than, well, they pay me a lot of money. (laughs) And that was when I realized that I needed to look for something different. And, you know, it's, it's been an incredibly long process, but what I will say is the cool thing that I found 
uh, you know, when I, when I talk about passion or purpose, like I did in my TED talk is once you define what your purpose is in life or what your passion is that drives you and you can name it, you can go back throughout your whole life and you can see, cause you've always, I guarantee you, you've always been interested in that. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so everything you've done, you can see where it was building on that. Yeah. No, so these days I'm doing, you know, organizational behavior and organizational culture. Um, I'm probably soon going to pursue an actual PhD in organizational psychology. Um, but I was able to look back through my whole life and say, okay, I love teaching adults. I love studying organizations, how they grow, how they change leadership, all of that stuff. And I can look back even through my military career and see how I was doing that. I can look back through college and see how I was writing stuff about that. Um, and you know, so just because you change your, change your mind or figure out you were meant to be something different, I would say doesn't necessarily mean you're starting from scratch because you can look back and build your experiences out to represent that. How, how would you say your experiences changed from being, I mean, we're always a veteran. Once a veteran, always a veteran, but how, how would you say your, your experience is changing now that you're a military spouse? Right, because there's two different experiences here. Now you're you have a husband that goes and he gets deployed, and and how how does that change your your workflow uh, when that happens? Yeah, so a couple of things going from being a veteran to being a military spouse is very challenging. I think always being a military spouse is challenging, sure. but I think our entire culture is built to support the veteran. And, you know, I've talked to so many military spouses and I tell them you have to be the leading actress in the movie of your own life. Um, That's a great so way to again, put it. Like, I like that. Finding, that, finding that purpose and passion is really important. Um, you know, I went from being, a, again, a captain, military intelligence officer, which means I'm briefing generals and colonels and I'm very respected. And all of a sudden I'm just Mr. Young's wife. Um, and that was kind of very shocking for me but it it did also you know make me want to go out and strive i also was the i am the expert in how my husband dies that was my job was to i was the expert on enemy for aviation which is how i met my husband oh wow so he now works the most dangerous mission sets in the world. And I know all of those details. And so that's been another level of, you know, I think hard, but also interesting because I think, again, like we were saying, when you, when you look at stuff and you see the way to portray it. So veterans, we talk about operations planning, how we're skilled at operations planning all the time. And which I think is true from the veteran side of me, but I think my level of operations planning for what I'm going to do if this happens is incredibly detailed as a spouse on the spouse side of it. I didn't even and think of so, it that way. That is incredible. So you you have everything mapped out. I could, I could blow out. any CEO away with oh, the Jesus. amount of preparation. If that black car pulls up in my house, I have 20 minutes before I can fall apart. And here are all the things I will put into place. Oh, <laughs> and God. people have been briefed and, and people know what they're going to do. <laughs> and so, you know, I really encourage military spouses to sort of think through that. And by the way, it helps you cope. 
you're, with the fear. You're such and a, without being uh, gone. You're such an overachiever, Daniela. I can't even get my kids to do an <laughs> earthquake plan. Yeah. So so that doing all of that it has reduced that whole it's given you an opportunity to reduce any level of anxiety because you've already prepared yourself. Is that correct? Sort yeah, it it really does, right? I mean, nothing is gonna nothing is gonna make it better. Um, of course, I can't imagine what it's really like to go through that. But being prepared is absolutely going to make it smoother, right? Mm-hmm. It's gonna it's not going to make the process worse. And then, just like you know, our our job as intelligence officers in the military is exactly that. Like, what's most likely going to happen, and then what's the worst possible thing that can happen so that we start thinking through how am I going to respond, which incidentally is not different from what moms and dads do when they're potty training a toddler and they have to go up to tar- target, right? You're like, it's not what am I going to do? How am I going to respond? What is the process? And it's so different um, for boys and girls. I just want to tell you that as parents, yeah. like, you know, I, as boys, you just tell them pee on the tire and I have to carry a potty around for my toddler. So my daughter, so yeah. totally get that. Yep. Oh, that's yep. so funny. I love it. Uh, so we've got, uh, we're going to get ready to do a com- quick commercial break, but I wanted to ask uh, really quickly about, you know, like, um, <clears throat> how did you come to the realization that you needed to come to, a, you not only were going to plan this, but like who you included in this plan in your ancillary life? Um, you're talking about the, the operations plan I mentioned? Yeah, like how, how did you get friends and family into this and be like, hey, by the way, so when this black truck pulls up to my house, I have 20 minutes before I'm going to break down. Here's the A, B, and C of your role in all of that. Yeah, they're just the, they're those people in my life, right? So yeah. my, you know, my best friend in the world who, who lives in another state, she's going to get the one phone call and she's going to get on a plane. And the other three that are local, which is my sister, you know, I've talked to them. Look, I, look, I know you love Tom, but you're getting a text message if this happens, cause that's all I'm going to have the ability to do. And sure. they're going to drop everything and, and come to my house. And wow. the, you know, the person that's going to help with the finances is going to come over. And those friends that are, are notified are then going to, they're going to be the ones that call like my parents and my, you know, other, other people, sort of ancillary people that are, are going to yeah. help out. That's... Um, and so, you know, and, and one person's a caregiver for my daughter. So sure. of course she's, you know, I've, I mean, I've just had those discussions and with them in the same way that my husband and I have the discussions about filling out the will and all that. It's, you wow. know, he's in, he's in this high potential for a, a dangerous job, you know, and, and we go through it. Okay. And then, you know, the other thing I would say to answer the question of, of how we deal with it is we have our, we have our personal motto live today. Like he deploys tomorrow, which is true for us. He's been gone about nine months this last year, a uh, different, different deployments at a time and he'll be, he'll be gone with a day's or two's notice. And, but you know, we, we take the time to, to do things as a family or do things as a couple and enjoy, appreciate, you know, in a way everyone should do because you never know when is the last day, but most people don't, I think really think about sometimes. Yeah. No, I, I totally get that. So we've been talking to Daniela Young of Cultural Forte. Uh, we're going to take a quick uh, commercial break. We'll, we'll be right back. Support for today's episode comes from our friends at Ruby Receptionists. At Ruby, they've mastered the art of turning rings into relationships. Their team of remote receptionists answer all of your calls live as if they're right there in your office. 
Together, you and Ruby transform your phone into the sales engine it was meant to be. Start setting your business apart today. Visit callruby.com forward slash startup radio to sign up or better yet, call them at 833-861-8100 and use promo code startupruby. And we're back with Daniela Young, this remarkable young lady. If you've missed the last 45 minutes, well, I don't know what to tell you. You've missed a lot. Uh, so we, we, we would love to hear a little bit more about your business, um, Daniela. So um, how you, you know, what drew you to start it and, and talk about the services that you provide through your business. Yes. So how I started, uh, probably like every startup is a complicated question and it changed a thousand times. So back maybe four or five years ago when I was still in the military and shared the story of my background with one of my leaders, a colonel that I worked for, he, you know, went away and processed it and came back and he said, Daniela, do you know what kind of things you must understand about leadership and culture that normal people don't understand? And I said, no, um, I totally didn't, didn't get it at all. Um, <laughs> but I, you know, he's been one of my advisors to this day. And he's one of those people that really studies leadership and culture and is one of those great leaders you work for in the military. And I've just, I've been through this process of very much sort of figuring out theory, but also realizing all the parallels, right? That there are, there are so many parallels to my cult experience, my military experience, which what really boils down to is that organizations have a psychology, organizations have cultures, and there's a, there's a way to build them. So I initially got into just building a team building company, which was just, we're going to come out, we're going to do an, an exercise, I'm going to teach you some military strategies of bonding while we paint, actually, um, where I put a lot of stress on you while we're painting, and it's going to help your team come together. And what I realized, first of all, was a lot of business leaders don't know they have a culture problem. Mm -hmm. You know, they just think they have a recruiting problem or a hiring problem. And so it's a little bit delicate. It's a little bit like telling people they need therapy, mm -hmm. uh, which is the, the challenge on the, on the business side. But, you know, also realize that like, there's so much more that goes into this. There is, you know, there really is structures and strategies for building a culture that you want on purpose for developing leaders in a purposeful sort of way. And, you know, I have 23 years of experience in these two very large, very structured, very unparalleled organizations. I was going to say, you but, are an expert. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, you know, it, it pretty much comes down to you build you know, they're leaders that are building cultures of devotion and community and ideology and advocacy where people go out and bring new people in. And every business leader wants that. And so, you know, one of the one of the talks that I give to CEOs is called Cult Combat and Culture. And I and I talk about that, but I also talk about how look, you also can't spell culture without cult. Um, yeah. and what I mean by that is Everything that you're doing to build a good culture also has a dangerous downside. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've all seen that in the military, uh, especially you, Carmen, in Vietnam, right? You know, uh, I wasn't actually in Vietnam, but I, I was in during the Vietnam War because back then they didn't even 
let women go out there unless you were a nurse. Okay, so understood. It, yeah. But but you know what I'm talking about as yes. far as like we build in the military, we build incredibly strong group ideology. But yes, d- definitely. we have to be very careful to stay away from group think. Mm-hmm. Right, which is the sort of downside of group ideology. And when you look at every, almost every instance of when bad things have happened in the military, you know, when a village gets massacred or a family gets killed, and you can see where that that culture was breaking down, that group was developing a, a very cult mentality in, in a way that was dangerous. Which yeah. is why I say, you know, people, even talking to business leaders, they say, wait, military, what leadership? Aren't you just ordering people and isn't just unquestioning obedience? And, you know, I, I don't think so. And in my experience, the good leaders aren't doing that. Right. Um, you know, I was, I mentioned I was part of the first group of women that was sort of doing this deliberate ground combat. And what I experienced was leaders who, who didn't know how to do this saying, I don't know how to do this. We need to integrate this culture. You guys need to question everything we do so that we, so that we know, you know, our, our leader was unfortunately the Lieutenant that was killed, but he said, he said, don't get me wrong. When I say, get your head down, get your head down. Cause that means somebody's shooting at us, but I want you to question why we're going on that mission in the first place. Right. Mm -hmm. You know why? And, and we had an incident where we, you know, we got to a village and the, the women noticed that there was no kids around and the men noticed that one side of the path was caved in. And together we were like, oh, there's probably a bomb there. Wow. And, there and sure enough, there was. And it was one of those situations where the, the men leading the patrol were like, yeah, we wouldn't have, we get briefed all the time to look for the children and we wouldn't have thought about that. Yeah. That's and, crazy. you know. We and, thought about that. And, and it's so not it always was, like was, that in the military either. I mean, you get a lot of people in the military, uh, specifically officers, officers, at least in my experience, where they there's this classist thought, right? Like you are uh, enlisted. I'm above you. You're going to listen to what I say. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, I think the, the military is just as fraught with good and bad leaders mm-hmm. as any, any other organization or, or anywhere else. Yeah. You know? And, and the military, you know, has to, again, when we, we try to classify things as good and bad and, you know, the military is an organization about killing other people. Yeah. We have to, as leaders, struggle very hard to build culture and to drive it as a force for good um, and a lot of those things. Yeah. And, the, and the other thing I just think is, is those leaders are not paying attention to, you know, what I call the, the importance of diversity for reducing risk and increasing profits or outcomes. Yeah. And it's a, you know, military intelligence concept, then kind of uh, influenced by also my, my time as a woman in combat. But in military intelligence, we have a quadrant and it's like, you know what you know on one corner and in the lower corner is you don't know what you don't know. And it's impossible to find out. It's impossible to set collection requirements for things that you don't know you don't know. It's like you can't answer a question you don't know you have. And so what, you know, in the military for 250 years, they said women aren't good enough to be in combat. Mm. And when they finally put women in combat, they realized, oh, there's all these other things. Yeah. You know, there's all these other things that women bring to the table besides being the biggest and the strongest men. Yeah. That we already have those. And so, you know, for, again, so, sort of how I translate this for, for business leaders when I'm talking to them, it's, look, diversity, 
diversity and equality are not the same thing. You're not, you're not recruiting different people and listening to them because you want to make them feel good. You're doing it because they have different worldviews right. than you have. Yep. And literally, literally my experience of that is that lieutenant who said to me, Daniela, tell me about yourself because I want to learn how different you are from me. And I said, oh boy. <laughs> Let me tell you a story. So uh, we're we... going to get into this, you know, but then it's, it's on leaders to, yeah. you know, I've also talked to so many leaders that they're like, well, I staffed my table with everyone of a different color, or different nationality, and I still just get the same ideas. Mm. Well, then I think it's on the leader. Are you empowering people to express their different ideas and bring their different life experiences to bear? Or do you just expect them to show up to the table and tell you the same thing that everyone else is saying? Yeah. Then, of course, you're not getting diver- diversity of ideas, right? Absolutely. So, yeah. So yeah, we've been talking well to... well expressed. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So we've been talking to Daniela uh, Young over at uh, Cultural Forte. We have a few minutes, and there's always a question I like to ask at the end of the program that really is about what you've learned as a, as a founder. So, so tell us, what's that one thing that you've done in your entrepreneurial journey that, that you've really messed up and that you've said, I'm never doing that again? And what have you done to mitigate the risk of that happening again? Yeah, I spent a bunch of money funding what I would now call was my idea that I thought was my first business before actually testing it or getting, you know, any, any feedback that it was a good idea or which means people giving you money, not people telling you it's a good idea. So I've learned that you don't have a business until someone is paying you. Yeah. No, that's true. And I've learned that there's so much that goes into starting a business that is not about your idea or your product or whatever it is. There's, you know, everything else to it. So the second time around, I have gone much more slowly, tested the ideas, done a bunch of different things, you know, got a lot of feedback from pe- from people. Um, it was interesting to me when I was putting the, uh, the much mentioned Ted talk together, I actually went through the sort of entrepreneur process on that including, you know, testing it out in front of a hundred people before I ever went on stage, changing it 180 degrees from what I first wrote based on their feedback, you know, um, and just sort of that entire process that we are probably all familiar with as, as founders. Yeah. No, that's a great, great. I, I've told founders this before. You're, I, you have a hypothesis and it doesn't turn into a business until someone gives you money for it. And then even when when they give you money, you got to make sure you're making a profit. Yeah, you got to iterate on that all the time. Well, Daniela, thank you so much. Uh, Where can people find you uh, online? Yeah, so I am online. My website is culturalforte.com. I am also on Twitter, Daniela M. Young, which is a great way to get a hold of me. I'm on Instagram, same, Daniela M. Young. I'm on Facebook. I have a you know, public persona page where I post stuff and, and engage with people at Daniela Young and on LinkedIn. And I, I love connecting with people. I nice. um, love talking with different, especially, you know, obviously veteran founders yeah. about their businesses, what they're experiencing. 
And, yeah. and, and, we, and yeah. we loved your story. It's very inspiring. Thank you so much, Daniela. Yeah, and if, and if you're listening and you want to watch the TED Talk that we've been talking about, go, on, go online and search Lost in Transition, Daniela Young, uh, TED Talk, uh, Tacoma, and you'll find it almost immediately. But uh, amazing talk, amazing story. Thank you for, for spending your hour with us. Like I said at the beginning, it's, uh, it's going to be a quick hour. So we did that. So thank you so much. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, this was super fun. And if I can give a quick plug, yeah. uh, if you like the TED Talk or you like this episode and you happen to know a publisher of a traditional or an independent press, I would love to be connected to them. That's Because that's I'm uh, working on my first book. That's awesome. Good. Awesome. Thank, thank you. you so much, Daniela. Uh, we are out of here. This is it for the Veteran Founder Podcast for this week on the Startup Radio Network. Catch us next week at 1 p.m. Have a great week, everybody. You're listening to the Startup Radio Network. Listen, learn, launch. 10% of our gross revenue goes directly to women entrepreneurs in developing countries around the world through Kiva's microfinance program.